0: Hello and welcome to the Monash Peripatetic Medicine podcast series. My name is Paul Miles, and today I am delighted to be speaking with Jocelyn Clark, the executive editor of the Lancet. Uh, Jocelyn was previously a senior editor at PLOS Medicine and assistant editor at the BMJ. With a PhD in health science, public health sciences, and strong interest in global health and gender equity, she is passionate about the improving the quality and integrity of the medical literature. And building capacity of researchers in low and middle income countries. She's an al- also an adjunct professor of medicine at the University of Toronto, and this week has a new title, and that is as the WTMS visiting professor at the Alfred in Melbourne. Welcome, Jocelyn.
1: Thank you very much, Paul. It's great to be here. Thank you.
0: Now, I'll start really by, I guess, um, focusing on you yourself, of course, and that is why and how did you find yourself as an executive editor
1: at The Lancet? Oh, wow. It's, um, you know, good fortune and a bit of serendipity. So, I was a graduate student um, in public health sciences, but during my studies, I had done quite a bit of freelance journalism. I guess I sort of discovered over the course of my graduate studies that I really enjoyed writing. And so I did some freelance writing, kind of try to pay the bills while I was a graduate student. And I also got involved in some peer review research. There's actually a community of researchers in the world, if you can believe it, who study the process of peer review. Um, Sometimes they call it journalology. Anyways, I started um, getting involved in a bit of that with my um, long Time colleague and mentor Paula Rochon at the University of Toronto and I found myself in September of 2001 at a conference that gathered all these peer review researchers it was a bit bittersweet because actually it was September 11th 2001 and we had arrived in Barcelona a few of us little PhD students had arrived earlier than the conference because we were taking a course um, before the formal conference began. And that course was being taught by some editors and professional writers. And so on the night of September 11th, 2001, when um, the tragedy happened in New York, and meaning that most of the conference attendees were not going to be able to make it to Barcelona, we gathered in the lobby of this hotel, and it was myself and some other PhD students, along with the editors of all these major medical journals. And so I got to meet that evening, Richard Smith, who's the editor of the BMJ at the time, Richard Horton, the editor of the Lancet, who's uh, now my boss, and a few others. And that started a conversation about what it would be like to work at a major medical journal. And fast forward a year, I applied for a training position at the BMJ, um, almost like kind of a postdoc year for me because I'd finished my PhD. They called it the um, editorial registrar position. I applied for it. Uh, I competed I got it. And the rest is history.
0: Well, so a slight mix of serendipity, but also natural interest and talent. So Already I'm thinking this is quite different to the way most medical researchers think. I mean, often they come from a, I mean, a healthcare environment and they pick up research along the way. Uh, but you seem to have a particular focus around actually the writing process itself. It's not just the science or not just the message that's there. It's really how that's communicated.
1: Yeah, I always, when people describe, or people ask me to describe the profession of a journal editor, or what the role is like. I always tell people that we're half doctors, half journalists. And by doctor, I mean, you know, many of us are scientifically trained, others are clinically trained, or both. And we, in coming to this role, professionalize as journalists. And then other members of our staff are professional journalists who then Uh, you know, kind of specialize in medicine or science. So you have to kind of be both. I mean, it's tremendously important, I think, um, not least for the credibility of journals to be edited by people who um, have scientific or clinical training, so therefore have, um, you know, lived in the shoes of authors, researchers who submit their important work to us, but also really um, have a strong understanding of the journalistic um, process and model because we are not just science journals. We are almost like magazines. We have a tremendous amount of editorial matter and we want to express a particular vision to an audience and that requires a journalistic outlook.
0: It's fantastic to hear that kind of sense really because it highlights a few things, one of which is obviously the capacity to communicate your science or your ideas well uh, and equally, of course, as a journalist would in any other mainstream newspaper outlet, um, it has to be interesting, innovative, uh, saying something new or something better than perhaps what's been done so far. So I guess at that point, I'd like to kind sort of extrapolate on. I mean, how does a major journals like the Lancet or BMJ? How how do they these major medical or these general medical journals? differ from, say, a leading specialty journal. In our field, it would be something like the British Journal of Anesthesia or Anesthesiology, where we're obviously looking to be at the best in our perhaps narrow field of anesthesiology. What, what makes that type of journal different to uh, the journals you've worked for?
1: Yeah, a few things. I mean, one thing that a general medical journal shares with some of those leading specialist journals that you mentioned is a, a total dedication and concern with publishing the very best research in a field. For us, that field is just broader, um, and our audience is much broader. So we, we, we still do actually circulate to specialists, but also a very many generalists. And not just jobbing clinicians, but big journals like The Lancet, The BMJ, and others are also having an influence and an impact among much broader communities of health policymakers, decision makers, the public even, um, journalists. So we have a much, much um, broader audience um, to cover. The other thing that distinguishes the big weekly general medical journals um, is that they're staffed by professional editors. Most journals in the world um, including specialist titles, tend to be edited by part-time editors or academics who do it you know, as volunteers or on top of an already busy kind of clinical or research career. The big journals are published by big publishing houses. They're, um, for the most part, very, you know, it's a very lucrative business. These are costly journals to produce because they have a lot of editorial matter. So in addition to those research articles, they've got Um, sections of editorials, commentaries, policy analyses, that sort of thing. A lot of the big journals have news sections. So we actually have on our staff a news editor. We've got journalists around the world who report for us. Um, So they resemble more like a newspaper or a magazine. And to be honest, um, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we're competing for readership with you know, not just other science journals, but probably those same magazines and newspapers that increasingly cover health and science so well. Yeah,
0: interesting, very interesting. Now, I've had a look just uh, over the weekend. In, in the past 12 months, The Lancet's published several very important anesthesia trials uh, in the area, obviously, that I, I and perhaps many of our listeners uh, are aware of. Um, uh, just to remind you, because I'm sure you can't keep up with all of this, but Carol Peden from the UK uh, published their Epoch, Cluster randomized trial looking at the effectiveness of a bundle of care for emergency laparotomy. Uh, Donut Spahn from Switzerland uh, evaluated intravenous iron and EPO for iron deficiency anemia in cardiac surgery. And most recently, Tim Short's balanced trial comparing the effects of light and deep anaesthesia uh, on one year survival after major surgery. Um, now, I can't expect you to recall all the details of these trials, but I do expect our listeners or should be aware of them. I guess the first two address healthcare interventions and settings that I would think are actually quite general. They're broader than anesthesia, much around perioperative medicine itself or or the broader areas of surgical care. Um, But of course, the last one really is a very technical issue, largely for anesthetists. Why is it that a fairly specific anesthesia drug trial or intervention trial would interest the Lancet and the Lancet readership?
1: Yeah, so it's one of the... I suppose there's a sweet spot for general medical journals that you want, um, you know, outstanding science that can circulate and have relevance to a, a broad general audience, but at the same time we're terribly interested in, and you can imagine as a group of editors really excited about you know really cutting edge research that happens in specialist areas or indeed as you've mentioned even in subspecialist areas and y- you'll you'll probably see that trend across all the general medical journals that occasionally you'll there'll be something special that sort of percolates up that appears in a table of contents in a week that you know might surprise you i mean that's the sort of uh, reaction we want to g- get from readers and we're really interested in um, Areas like yours in anesthesiology that don't have such a long legacy of, of, um, um, of uh, you know, maybe excellence or innovation in research like other fields have, we want to be the journal um, to showcase that when it does uh, appear. We're lucky that that uh, paper, all three of them actually that you mentioned, really fortunate to have been able to publish those. Um, uh, authors, uh, you know, find the process of getting their papers published terribly competitive but as big journals we also exist in a competitive marketplace and it feels good when we publish something that we know you know maybe could have appeared in the new england journal of medicine feels great to see it in the pages of the lancet
0: fantastic i think that again is great news for our listeners because i mean everyone would love to obviously publish uh in the lancet uh and it seems even in a highly specialized area if it is seen as high quality to a high quality standard um, really, practice changing uh, at the cutting edge. That in fact, uh, the Lancet could be could be very interested. So that's nice for them to hear that. Now, of course, we hear a lot about the hierarchy of evidence, and and most of the time, the major journals are publishing large um, practice changing randomized trials. What what types of observational non-randomized studies would the Lancet be interested in? I mean, what makes it I mean, they're often criticised as being you know, exposed to biases and so on and, and uh, often hypothesis-generating rather than practice-changing and so on. What types of observational or cohort studies would the Lancet or is the Lancet interested in?
1: Yeah, I mean, our, I think generally our priorities and how we rank s- submissions and judge them for their originality or their novelty or their importance... Combines those factors but almost maps exactly on that hierarchy of evidence. We tend to publish a lot of trials as do uh, the other big uh, journals. And for those trials that aren't, or I'm sorry, those studies that aren't randomized, we're almost always, almost every cohort study or piece of epidemiology we're studying is prospective. So you'll rarely, if ever, see a retrospective study in The Lancet. Um, And we let um, papers that are reporting studies a little farther down the hierarchy, like case control studies, um, certainly things like case series, and case reports, qualitative studies. We let those sorts of things go to other journals. Um, Fortunately, we publish 17 other journals within the Lancet group of journals. And so we have the luxury of being able to... Offer to authors if their study is um, reporting or if their paper is reporting a study that doesn't rank high enough for us to consider pursuing, that we can offer them the potential for their paper to be considered by, you know, a specialist journal like the Lancet Global Health, the Lancet Public Health, The Lancet Neurology, et cetera, et cetera, including two general um journals that are high volume that are called e medicine and e-clinical medicine
0: yeah okay and you, I've also heard you talk through the week about um, uh, the Lancet editorial editorials and commentary process the types of commentaries they do publish both commissioned and non-commissioned can you tell us a bit more about that the process about how that happens and again what's the purpose of it for the Lancet
1: Yeah, our editorial pages include that news section I mentioned earlier, our editorials, three of them a week that are um, written in-house. But we also have a section that we call comment, which um, comprises commentaries. Um, And this is a very, I think, quite lively section, very well read of short pieces in a kind of editorial style type, argumentative type piece. About half of the comments each week are linked to research articles. So what they are intended to do is put that research article in context or in perspective for readers, and it's generally written by one of the reviewers of the research article. So we choose from the peer reviewers and commission a linked commentary and invite that person to also bring on board a co-author or two if they wish. Um, And those are quite um, important, I think, and interesting because – They almost provide a kind of shortcut to the paper. So for a busy clinician, imagine, or someone who is a generalist, maybe not reading every research article each week in depth, but the commentary can give them a flavor of what that says, what it means, why it's important, you know, strengths and limitations, that sort of thing. So that's one great category. That's about half of the section. Then the other half of the section are commentaries that have come to us unsolicited, so people in the field... Um, pitching an idea to us. Maybe it's a burning issue in either clinical medicine or global health. Um, Maybe it's something they want to stimulate a debate around or they feel like there's, you know, they have some kind of concern that an issue has been neglected. You know, it's real that kind of real kind of almost like an op-ed, a kind of mm. critical piece that's very readable, we hope um, kind of stimulates critical thinking. That's th- those are the criteria we sort of use for those. And then in addition to that unsolicited stuff, which we are very happy to consider, um, we also go out and commission... Um, commentaries on topics that are of interest to us and we decide uh, about topics that are of interest to us as a team a comment team there's four of us or in our larger editorial team sometimes we'll consider topics during the week for our weekly editorials and we decide not to go for those topics in our editorials but instead go out into the field and commission an expert to write about something that we think Has relevance to our readership, but also provides a kind of either educative or maybe, uh, you know, occasionally an entertaining kind of uh, read.
0: Thank you. Now, authors seem to be influenced by impact factor when they're choosing a journal. And of course, they perhaps often overreach uh, in that process. But does the leadership at or the leadership team at the Lancet themselves really monitor or consider the, their own impact factor for the Lancet, for instance, relative to the competitors? Or are you more interested in altmetrics or or downloads or or other aspects of, of success?
1: I think it's a blend of both. So to answer the question about whether the leadership team at the publishing company cares about impact factor... I would have to say yes, I have no doubt. Um, But for me personally, I would answer that question to say, you know, I would be a little bit more circumspect. I think the journal impact factor is, yes, one way of ranking journals, and it's a traditional way that institutions even rank their, you know, faculty, but it has a lot of limits um, all of which have been well documented. Not least that it's a journal-level metric and really might have zero relation, no, little relationship with your actual individual study. So that makes it a bit of a mismatch with understanding and communicating your own impact of your research. And that's um, exactly why those other metrics, like the alt metrics, which you mentioned, have come to be developed and have come to be, I think, really, really useful metrics. So personally, for me, when I look at my own work, I'm really interested in those alt metrics. First of all, they're publicly available, they sit on your article, and they kind of, you know, they're like a little meter, and they give you a sense of, you know, who's coming to view your article, who's downloading your article, um, who's tweeting or sharing on social media your article they can often a lot of them contract blog or media coverage so it's a really nice kind of one-stop shop um, of what an article's impact might be um, and there are different companies that produce uh, article level metrics but other journals um, you know including the BMJ for example allows for reader activity almost almost in real time I mean it's a moderated um, website But you can um, post a comment on almost anything that they publish um, as a kind of rolling commentary on that piece of work. And that can Mm -hmm. be a way to sort of track what kind of reaction your work is getting. And I really feel like those are, if not better, they're at least complementary to um, the journal impact factor academic institutions tend to be very um, (laughs) wedded to the journal impact factor. And I think it's the responsibility of not just journals and editors like myself to kind of of try to broaden that conversation about how you measure impact, but also faculty members themselves to really push the conversation about what impact really means.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And certainly in my own world, that certainly seems to be where things are going, including, of course, for the national research granting bodies as well. So just one final question now, and and that is to ask you, someone who's achieved greatly in your field, and of course is across the highest levels of medicine and medical research, what advice would you give to a young researcher wanting to advance their career?
1: Hmm. That's a great question. Um, I don't feel very senior, actually. I feel like I'm still learning and growing all the time. And, you know, I guess that's you know, one thing that's so great about my job is that ability to always, uh, almost all, always, be stimulated by the material and everything that, every possibility that can be um, pursued in this kind of line of work. So I imagine someone young coming into this field of medicine or science probably feels like me, where they just have this incredible amount of curiosity and ambition around learning and being kind of involved in the world of ideas. If, if it's the case that publication remains as important to the career path in academia, especially in medical academia, and that publication um, remains such an important marker or currency, then my advice would be to really um, spend more time thinking and planning your papers um, in advance, like when you set out your research program, start thinking about what the, you know, series of publications might be that flow from it, Um, and to really, really think carefully about matching the message of each of your papers with target journals. I see so many um, authors spend so much time frustrated um, because of rejection or, or, or trying to place a paper and it just not hitting the mark um, without really thinking through um, the necessity of matching the message of the paper with, you know, the particular target journal.
0: Right. So that kind of idea for the research of this, and particularly younger ones who are still trying to work at work how the whole system is working, uh, is to think about what the message is. What, you know, what, why do they do that type of study? What have they found and why is it important? And I guess trying to match that up with the, with the right target audience, which includes obviously the journal that you would submit to. I think that's important. Thank you very much for this conversation. It's been fantastic for me and hopefully for most of our, our, our listeners. Um, I'll finish up now by um, thanking Jocelyn Clark, the executive editor of The Lancet, and you've been listening to Paul Miles
1: here at Monash University. Thank you so much for for hosting me as a visiting professor this week. It's been a wonderful program you've put together for me, series of lectures and talks, but also um, just a wonderful opportunity to meet so many colleagues here at Monash University and the Alfred Hospital who are doing amazing work. And it's been a really, really fantastic. Thank you. you.